lost opportunity or new momentum or even both? In the end of May, the 75th World Health Assembly will discuss and adopt the WHO Global Alcohol Action Plan. It is meant to help accelerate action on alcohol policy development after a lost decade when no progress was made. But is the new action plan up to the task or is it a lost opportunity for accelerating action on alcohol as public health priority? In this show I talk with Professor Amandine Gard about the human rights law perspective on the Global Alcohol Action Plan and in our conversation Amandine sharpens my thinking about alcohol not only as public health priority but also as human rights priority and the potential of such an approach. Hello, from Movendi International I am Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the eighth episode of our second season. Thank you so much for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists We explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies and expose the alcohol industry. For today's conversation, I welcome Professor Amandine Gard. Amandine is a professor of law at the University of Liverpool. She has developed a specific research expertise on the role of law in the prevention of non-communicable diseases and is founding director of the Law and NCD Research Unit, which regularly advises international organizations, NGOs, public health agencies and governments worldwide. I'm really excited to welcome uh, Professor Gard and in our conversation she shares her analysis of the strengths and gaps of the draft WHO Global Alcohol Action Plan. We also discuss the potential of a human rights-based approach to improving the global and regional alcohol policy response. And we talk about alcohol issues such as labeling, trade, taxation and the harm caused by the products and practices of the alcohol industry from a distinct and unique human rights law perspective. And we dive into why and how governments should act collectively to protect people from alcohol harm. We recorded our conversation on April 28th, 2022. Hello, Amandine, and uh, very welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk with you. Warm welcome. Yes, thank you so much, Mike. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. Yeah, and I think that we have such an interesting topic uh, today as the World Health Assembly is just a few weeks away, um, ready to hopefully adopt the Global Alcohol Action Plan. I really want to use this opportunity to talk with you about this global action plan specifically and then global governance issues, um, cross-border issues in alcohol control more specifically. And uh, my first question is, uh, Amandine, 
you bring an important perspective. In my opinion, this perspective is uh, also lacking a little bit in, in alcohol control, but you have this ex important expertise uh, combining um, Uh, public health policy and human rights law, so the law perspective. And from this um, perspective, as the World Health Assembly is approaching now um, and the Global Alcohol Action Plan is on the agenda, what is your view of this uh, Global Alcohol Action Plan? That's a very broad uh, question, so I'll, I'll pick a few remarks and we can follow up in the discussion if there's yeah. anything else you want to unpack. But of course, overall, I very much welcome the, the draft uh, Global Action Plan, which calls on states and the international community to do far more than has been done to date to prevent alcohol-related harm. Now, we know that alcohol consumption is an established NCD risk factor and the alcohol industry remains significantly less regulated than on other NCD promoting industries, not least the tobacco industry. And even the food industry is at times more strictly regulated than the alcohol industry. For example, in the European Union, there is this infamous exemption for alcoholic beverages from the obligation to disclose ingredients and provide nutrition information. So the explicit recognition that progress has been uneven and very often insufficient is, I think, very welcome. I also welcome the fact that the draft action plan recognizes new challenges. And in particular, it highlights the challenges associated with trade liberalization and digitalization more clearly than the WHO Global Strategy did in 2010. And I think this is extremely important because this further justifies the reflection that we should have on what the international community can do collectively to address a problem that has significant cross-border implications. Another point I would like to note is the operational principles of the draft action plans uh, have been helpfully updated. And um, two of them in particular have caught my legal eye, if not my eagle eye. Um, so, so firstly, uh, the draft action plan calls for a human rights approach to the development and implementation of alcohol policies at all levels And it notes in particular that protection from alcohol-related harm contributes to the fulfillment of the right to the highest attainable standard of health. And this is in line with other UN strategic documents on the prevention and control of non-communicable diseases. And this evolution has important implications for how states around the world should act, both individually and collectively, to promote healthier environments and therefore prevent uh, alcohol-related harm. And I think we'll unpack some of these elements uh, in a moment. And the other principle that I would like to, to note is that uh, the, the draft action plan emphasizes the importance of protecting alcohol control policies from commercial interests. So that reflects, as, as you will very well know, the, the growing recognition that the economic and the commercial determinants of health must be tackled 
and the alcohol industry must be regulated and regulated effectively, of course. So we have research that's flourishing in this field. The WHO itself has set up a new unit to specifically address these determinants. So it is difficult, if you like, to ignore the elephant in the room. But uh, what I'm going to say is that ultimately the uh, draft action plan is, uh, is too light on this issue and too ambiguous. So on the one hand, the, the draft action plan calls on states to ensure, and I quote, that the development of public policies to reduce the harmful use of alcohol should be protected in accordance with national laws from commercial and other vested interests that can interfere with and undermine the public health objectives. And most specifically, the, the plan states that appropriate mechanisms that involve academia and civil society must be set up in order to systematically monitor, prevent, and counteract such interference. So this is very welcome indeed, of course, and long overdue. Nevertheless, I would also argue that the WHO Global Action Plan does not go as far as it should regarding the imperative to protect policies from undue industry interference. And this is even before discussions take place at the World Health Assembly in Geneva next month, where we know the text could be watered down yet further by the time it is endorsed, we hope, by all member states. In fact, the action plan is far more ambiguous on this point that it should, than it should be in 2022, bearing in mind all we know about the lobbying strategies of the alcohol industry. In particular, the plan uh, is not sufficiently clear on the extent to which the alcohol industry has a responsibility in the growing burden of alcohol-related harm and what states should be doing to protect public policies from commercial interests. The reference in particular to appropriate engagement of all relevant stakeholders, I quote, is not helpful in the absence of any specific indication of what may or may not be appropriate. And we uh, know that the devil lies in the detail. So I would have preferred to see a far more robust statement, perhaps modeled on Article 5.3 of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And as you probably know, this provision states that in setting and implementing their public health policies with respect to tobacco control, parties shall act to protect these policies from commercial and other vested interests of the tobacco industry in accordance with national law. And then you have um, further interpretation guidance in the guidelines, which emphasize the fundamental and irreconcilable conflict between the tobacco industry's interest and public health policy. And further, the guidelines recommend that states establish measures to limit interactions with the tobacco industry and reject partnerships and non-binding or non-enforceable agreements with the tobacco industry. So we've seen how public-private partnership and self-regulatory initiatives have been instrumentalized by the alcohol industry as part of their corporate responsibility discourse to serve their economic interests. 
Such partnerships and initiatives do not serve genuine public health and consumer protection objectives. So my view is that state must remain in the driving seat when it comes to the regulation of the alcohol industry too. And this is what evidence and human rights-based approaches require, no less. And this is where I think the draft uh, global action plan should have been far more explicit uh, in this respect. Yeah, so this is really interesting to listen to you, um, both in terms of the challenges that the draft action plan outlines and in terms of the operational principles, you actually see improvements uh, that take into account the last 10 years. And I think you mentioned trade liberalization, digitalization. Uh, I think it will be uh, really interesting to dive a little bit deeper into those points. And I, I agree with you, um, the human rights-based approach and the uh, operational principle on protecting against industry interference, if I paraphrase it, uh, these are important additions. And then it's really interesting to listen to you, Amandine, because you have identified this gap between what is in the operational principles, for example, and in the challenges that the document identifies and what is actually in these action areas um, with the problematic language that you have outlined there. And um, my, my follow-up question is why, I mean, member states and also the World Health Organization, they have also made experiences with Article 5.3 from the FCTC. Why is uh, none of this experience, I mean, you mentioned this also, conflict of interest safeguards, measures to limit the interaction uh, with the alcohol industry. And now the World Health Organization is actually proposing measures for the alcohol industry. So it's actually going in the opposite direction as tobacco control and Article 5.3 is recommending. And what is your understanding? Why are those two industries dealt with so differently? Why is not the experience, the learning from FCTC Article 3 being applied to uh, this kind of uh, international effort to make progress on alcohol control, as you said? That's a very difficult question. Uh, the short answer would be uh, the fact that the focus has been primarily, as you very well know, on harmful consumption with this uh, suggestion that some consumption is not harmful, I think. And therefore, there is this sense that alcohol is very different as a commodity from tobacco, number one. And that, number two, has had a, an effect on the political will of the international community to act together to address alcohol-related harm. Now, if you also take, um, and, and, and that links to these two points, uh, a longer term view, and if you look at the history of tobacco uh, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, when uh, The, the, the Surgeon General in the United States in 1964 issued the report saying that the industry had misled uh, the public. There was this outcry that first tobacco were legal and the industry knew it, and that set the public very much against, uh, and the public regulators uh, society very much uh, against the tobacco industry. So this sense that the product was uh, very 
harmful, deadly, in fact, and that the industry had acted in such a way as to mislead on an industrial scale the public. And I think there's not been such perception, even though those of us who study the tactics of the alcohol industry can see uh, many, many similarities, but perhaps uh, there has not been these uh, cases that have shocked uh, public and, and um, you know, put uh, shocked public opinion to the same uh, degree. So it may be as simple as that. There may be some other uh, reasons, but I think also uh, some of the states that are um, wine, beer, spirit producing countries uh, also happen to be states uh, that have significant power in the uh, in international fora, and therefore they have um, uh, financial, uh, uh, financial, economic, and um, uh, political leverage. Uh, and this leverage has not been used sufficiently to promote better health for all. Um, and these are uh, dynamics that really must be addressed. And this is why I deplore, in a way, uh, the, but I'm not surprised uh, by the, the lack of ambition in this respect of WHO Draft Global Action Plan. I think it's really interesting to listen to you. And I think it just underlines my point introducing our conversation that I think this kind of law perspective on um, alcohol policy development, we need to strengthen it. So you are saying that um, the experiences from the FCTC work is not really applied to the, the development of alcohol policy uh, for at least three reasons. We have more work to do in exposing the alcohol industry um, and uh, how the products and practices of the alcohol industry fuel harm uh, that you have mentioned. Um, I think that leads to greater awareness and recognition of actually the industry being the driver. You mentioned commercial determinants of health. And now I have seen a discussion on Twitter about commercial drivers of health. So to make this even clearer. And then thirdly, politics also that Uh, the uh, the big countries, Western countries, are both uh, powerful within the World Health Organization, also within um, the World Trade Organization. I will ask you about this later on. And so they also are in a position to protect industry interests um, that they have at home. And I think that brings us back to this. I think you highlighted this very well, that there is actually a human rights dimension to um, developing alcohol policies because alcohol policy protects against health harm and there is a human rights uh, dimension to this. Can you explain to me and to the listeners, Amandine, what does it mean a rights-based approach to alcohol control just to get us into this uh, frame of thinking? Yes, absolutely. And before I do that, if I may, I'll just say that the, the draft action plan mentions the right to health, but does not at all reflect on what that should mean for states. So you have a disconnect between the, the, the operational principle as it is uh, laid down in the action plan and some of the statements, because as I will explain in a moment, uh, the idea that there might be uh, uh, undue industry interference 
in policy is not in line with a human rights-based approach. So uh, I think uh, one of the, the, the opportunities that the WHO Global Action Plan does not sufficiently reflect on, and that we as a public health community of civil society organizations, as academics interested in public health, should do is to, uh, to really reflect on what this rights-based approach should mean for alcohol. Now, a lot of my work, as you know, has been more in the area of food, uh, and I think there is enormous scope for uh, more work to be done on uh, alcohol. But to answer your question, uh, many definitions have been proposed of this concept of a human rights-based approach, uh, and all of them, uh, if we try and synthesize, highlight three core elements. And I list the three core elements so that I don't get lost in translation, so to speak. And then I will uh, be happy to expand uh, as you would like me to do. But firstly, human rights-based approaches are grounded in international human rights law, drawing on global and regional treaties and conventions that happen to enshrine the right to, uh, to health. And we can come back to that. Secondly, international human rights treaties and conventions recognize human rights to all people as right holders and place corresponding obligations on states as duty bearers. And, and I'll explain what that means in a, in a second. And thirdly, human rights-based approaches also rely on mechanisms. Uh, human rights-based approaches require that mechanisms should be established to ensure that the human rights of right holders are realized and state as duty bearers should be held accountable when human rights are not respected, protected, and fulfilled. So if you like, I can, I can sort of say a bit more on uh, the, these points to sort of flesh them out and apply more specifically to alcohol control. Yeah, absolutely. I think it sounds very interesting. And as I listen to you, I have some ideas, especially on the, the mechanisms to hold states accountable. But if you could go through what it means to be a rights holder in the context of alcohol harm and what states are duty bearers in the context of alcohol policy. That yeah. would be awesome. No, that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's fine. Uh, so uh, the, the first element really is to recognize that uh, rights-based approaches are grounded in international human rights law. And uh, if uh, WHO Global Action Plan refers to the right to the enjoyment of a highest attainable standard of health, it does not really expand on the sources, the meaning, so what we need to really be clear on is that the right to health is enshrined in a broad range of international and regional conventions and has near, near universal uh, application. So the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the Convention on the Rights of the Child are two of the most prominent examples of conventions where this right is enshrined. And importantly, this right has been interpreted expansively as a right to grow and develop to one's full potential and live in conditions enabling the attainment of a highest attainable standard of health. So 
that requires that the underlying determinants of health, including the commercial determinants of health or commercial drivers, as you mentioned earlier, should be regulated. And we have statements from the Committee on the Rights of the Child calling on uh, alcohol marketing to be effectively regulated because these negatively impact on the child's right to health, their right to life, their right to survival and development. So there, there is on the one hand this right to health that is interpreted broadly, but we must bear in mind that there are many more rights impacted, negatively impacted, when um, the alcohol industry is not regulated. And in particular, when we reflect on alcohol marketing and alcohol digital marketing more specifically, we must recognize that the right to privacy with very personalized uh, marketing strategies and the right to be free from exploitation are also uh, implicated. And I think a lot of work needs to be done and inspiration can be taken from uh, the, uh, the work that's been done recently in relation to food. Now, human rights, and that goes straight to your point of duty bearers, human, human rights are not optional. They are anchored in law and they lay down legally binding obligations on states as duty bearers to respect, protect and fulfill the rights of right holders. So convention will protect either the all uh, individual under the jurisdiction of a state, or they will protect specific groups like the Convention on the Rights of a Child, protect all children until they are uh, they reach the age of majority, in most cases, 18 years of age. So you see that uh, we are all right holders. <laughs> And uh, our rights must be protected and the a guardian, if you like, for this protection under human rights law are the states. And it's very important because uh, the obligations to protect human rights require that states adopt a preventive approach and regulate the commercial determinants of health effectively including the alcohol and advertising industries when their practices do not respect human rights. And that's been said again uh, many times by uh, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights or the Committee on the Rights of the Child. And calls have been made specifically to restrict the marketing of specific goods and services that are harmful to health. So I... I've argued that the best available evidence should guide the interpretation of human rights because the evidence regarding the impact of alcohol marketing, for example, on health evolves, then a dynamic interpretation is called for so that human rights treaties and conventions that may have been adopted decades ago can evolve and remain fit for purpose. They need to address the problem of the day. That's basically what I'm saying. So, a human rights-based approach, and it is one of its values, is that it unequivocally puts states in the driving seat, a position that they've often, if you like, relinquished to the detriment of public health and human rights. So that goes back to the point I was making earlier. If we know that self-regulation has not worked, that public-private partnerships have not work, then uh, the states must step in and do something that will promote better health for all.
10 years ago, uh, I was working for Movendi International's youth organization. And we uh, got funding from the European Commission for a campaign that we called All Rights. So you can see what we are doing there. And we went through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and uh, put the evidence that we had about alcohol harm um, to show where alcohol harm is an obstacle to the full, complete enjoyment of these rights. So I think that was a, that was a playful, not a layman approach to this kind of human rights-based um, discourse, so to say. And ever since then, I'm, every time I listen to you, we have had workshops. It seems actually then also very much straightforward. I mean, you are even mentioning specific human rights bodies like the um, CRC and these committees there making recommendations. Are we, have we dropped the ball, so to say, in actually not including this uh, dimension into our advocacy? Is it like the magic wand that once we start talking about the, the human rights and the governments as a duty bearer here, that, that we can uh, move and make much more progress that we haven't seen in the last 10 years? Is there some dimension to to this where we need to do better or is it does it sound really powerful but then in its implementation it's also very difficult it's a very interesting question and the answer is not simple uh, i will say have you dropped the ball i think the alcohol control community has not yet picked the ball up yet I think there is enormous amount of work to be done uh, if we want human rights to bear on these policies uh, that states could and should uh, develop to protect public health from uh, uh, alcohol-related harm. So I think uh, it's not that uh, we've failed, it's just that we haven't tried um, in a systematic enough way. Now, is a human rights-based approach, the magic wand? The answer is no, but uh, there is some value to human rights-based approaches. And before I go through uh, various headings that I would sort of uh, yeah. argue for, I would just say that uh, perhaps framing a certain issue as a rights issue brings more awareness and it's, you know, oh, not dealing with alcohol harm. Yeah, well, we shouldn't have drunk so much, blah, blah. When you frame things only as a public health issue. Uh, whereas when you frame, start framing it as a human rights issue, then clearly violation of human rights always sounds like a, a bad thing <laughs> that must be addressed. So if you have a convincing rationale as to why something is indeed uh, a human rights violation, then you, you're you're in a way stronger. So, what would be the the advantages uh, of adopting a human rights based approach as opposed to merely a public health approach? And of course, mm -hmm. the two are reconcilable; they feed mm -hmm. into each other. I'm not opposing them. What I'm yeah. saying is that a human rights based approach and a discourse around human rights does have some added benefits that uh, solely a public health perspective uh, may not have. So first of all, and I have four main uh, suggestions in terms of what a human rights-based approach can bring. 
As I was saying earlier, a human rights-based approach requires that there are mechanisms of accountability. Uh, and such approaches are supposed, are supposed to guarantee a degree of state accountability, making effective remedies more likely when rights are violated. So you can see how this can facilitate the translation of the commitments and obligations established in the international human rights law um, framework into practical, long-lasting and reliable entitlement. So you would have independent monitoring bodies, including courts and uh, national human rights institutions, as well as the, the global one, committee reporting obligations. So that's number one, the, this idea that states should be accountable. And the degree of accountability, I'm often asked this question, will vary depending on the states. There are states that are very robust, that have ombudspersons, that have um, uh, courts that enshrine international human rights into their national constitutions, making them more easily enforceable. And you have countries where uh, human rights violations are more common. So again, no magic wand, but at least some tools that may not have been used before by the public health community. The second is uh, a possible advantage is this idea of empowerment. Uh, and, and the wording empowerment is actually in the WHO uh, draft action plan, interestingly, but it's not particularly fleshed out. So once the concept of rights is introduced in policymaking, then the rationale for, for improving uh, environments and preventing diseases no longer comes only from the fact that individuals have needs, but also from the fact that they have rights. And these entitlements give rise to legal obligations, as I said, on the part of states. So um, I, I think this is important in terms of how you frame the discourse. Thirdly, and perhaps even more importantly, there's this question of legitimacy. Because human rights are inalienable and universal, there is an inherent legitimacy to this language of human rights that links to what I was saying earlier. So arguments based on human rights can ensure that an issue is given special consideration and that competing interests lose legitimacy if they are indeed incompatible with human rights. And when you think about the constant legal and political challenges that uh, industry actors have mounted against uh, national legislation intended to promote uh, alcohol control, uh, you, you can see how uh, framing the discourse in human rights term can initiate a paradigm shift. And finally, I will say that there are also some uh, advantages in terms of advocacy and participation. Because uh, an approach based on human rights provides an opportunity, if you like, to build strategic alliances, coalitions and networks with other actors who share a similar vision and pursue common objectives. So, for example, in relation to alcohol control, uh, human rights-based approach is likely to encourage the participation of um, actors who may not have previously envisaged alcohol consumption as a human rights concern. So human rights civil society organizations, human rights protection agencies, 
etc. And that can help in turn galvanize the political will that has been so much missing, if you like, and increase the pressure on states to ensure that they comply with these human rights obligations. So all in all, no magic wand. We know human rights are violated around, around the world. But for states that need a bit more support and uh, uh, more uh, arguments against uh, industry, uh, harmful industry practices, this is potentially a good thing. And if I think about my experience in the food space, where we did the um, we produced this report for UNICEF that was ultimately published in 2018 on a rights-based approach to food marketing. I've seen that this report has been used by different actors to uh, team up. So now WHO and UNICEF work very closely together and you can see that there is an increasing pervasiveness of the human rights discourse. Does that mean yet that states have regulated food marketing? Not necessarily, but the discourse is changing. And as we said for tobacco, the discourse was a very important precursor, if you like, to actual uh, policy measures. Yeah, I think, I mean, these four points that you uh, explain here uh, that lead to this kind of paradigm shift, they are very powerful. And I think it also brings us back to the analysis that you shared in the beginning that the alcohol industry um, as uh, one risk factor um, um, of the NCDs remains far less regulated than the tobacco industry. And you also mentioned a uh, junk food and sugar sweetened beverage industry there. And I think then you talked about some of the reasons why we are not uh, applying these lessons from uh, tobacco control, for example, and among them was awareness and recognition. So I can definitely see how this point that you're making now that just the discourse has to be more solid. We have to have more participants in the discourse. Um, and I think it's great that you mentioned UNICEF because as I listen to you, I'm thinking of violence against women. Alcohol is a massive um, contributor, risk factor there. In Movendi International Amondine, we work a lot. Sometimes we feel so lonely with working uh, on the topic of children growing up in households with alcohol problems. So very often, of course, it's uh, parental alcohol use problems. There is not even data, not even in, in high-income countries that even measure this problem. And these are just two examples for me for human rights being violated. Please challenge me if I'm applying this now too loosely, where also the, the women's rights movement, and you mentioned UNICEF, the child rights movement, they have a role to play here. So I, I completely agree. And I think, again, uh, we've been talking about non-communicable diseases, but the problem of alcohol-related harm goes beyond. And if we start mapping very seriously, the, say, the Convention on the Rights of a Child and international human rights uh, conventions and treaties more generally, then uh, you would find uh, quite a lot, which is not only uh, about non-communicable diseases. Uh, so absolutely a, a lot of work to be done. And uh, the, the Convention Against Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, would also have some contribution to make there. So uh, we, we shouldn't be limiting 
uh, ourselves to, um, you know, NCDs because alcohol is often framed as an NCD problem. I will also say on the point of lack of data that states should be, as part of their human rights obligations, uh, should engage in impact assessment. So how do you carry out impact assessment without data? <laughs> that's think that's a, um, that's a very important point you're making here, that we must ensure that we have sufficient data and that this data is as much as possible disaggregated. What kind of group, uh, you know, male, female, what kind of age group, what kind of uh, socioeconomic uh, background, uh, do certain policies promote health equity? Again, a principle which is in the WHO uh, Global Action Plan, the draft action plan. Uh, so, so you can see how a lot of elements, um, equity, human rights, evidence, um, public health objectives all feed um, into the same, um, yeah, uh, support each other to, to arrive at a good public health outcome, hopefully one yeah. day. That this is so interesting, and so you have spoken now about these four points that to me hammer home the potential that is in this rights based approach to alcohol control. If I summarize it, is it's uh, accountability, empowerment, legitimacy, and advocacy and participation, and that leads to a paradigm shift. And I liked uh, really. I have to say it resonated with me more than I liked it, but it resonated with me. This kind of uh, we get another dimension to the public health approach to alcohol policy. And I thought about uh, trade policy where uh, I talked uh, on the podcast with Dr. Pepita Barlow and you work with her. I think you have out a great study uh, recently where trade is one of those examples where you have to prove that an alcohol policy has a public health uh, reason, a public health intention to, to stand a chance within the trade policy arena. And I wanted to ask you in this context, um, adding the human rights dimension, would that mean, for example, that um, trade policy is not only used to limit alcohol policy development, but also actually to advance it? Uh, can can that happen? Do I understand this potential correctly then? Uh, that's a great question and another one which needs a bit of unpacking. So if you bear with me, I'd like to pick up on various points that you've mentioned, which hopefully right. all come together at the end. So first of all, this idea of paradigm shift and your relation to the, uh, and the link with trade policy, that's, I mean, that's quite extraordinary that when you look at NCD, uh, policies and the challenges, I will, I'm tempted to say the systematic challenges that the public health community has had to, to deal with, and alcohol control community in particular, it's quite extraordinary that the human rights agenda to some extent has been hijacked by industry actors. Because one of the uh, litigation strategies that industry has used uh, has been trade. I'm going to touch on this in a moment, but they've also used human rights arguments. Oh, you know, through marketing, we express ourselves 
Mm. And it's very important for the consumer to have information. So free expression is absolutely paramount to all these these kind of neoliberal economy we live in, (laughs) as a matter of fact. And that's the rationale. Allow consumers to have information. I won't go now into the question of whether advertising informs because seeing naked ladies uh, on, on a bottle of whatever beverage is not particularly informative. And it's not objective information. It may be misleading information, but that's not even protected. So leaving this very complex question aside, I think this right to information and free expression, and at the same time, the right to property that links to trade, the fact that trademarks are intellectual property that must be protected as part of the right to property has been invoked over and over again by the tobacco, the alcohol, and the food industries. So the paradigm shift really is to say, let's reflect on what human rights actually tell us. Yes, there are some rights to property. There are some rights to uh, expression, but when you have rights that are not absolute, they must be balanced against each other. And here comes the right of a child to uh, policies that uphold his or her best interest as a primary consideration, and then the profit-making endeavors of uh, an alcohol brand. And uh, here we have human rights tools impact, uh, human rights impact assessment, best interest of the child principle, and so on and so forth, that should be used. So that's what I mean by paradigm shift. I mean, please, industry actors, don't hijack an agenda that never was intended to allow you to perpetuate uh, human rights violation, quite the contrary. So we rectify the record. And we could also think, and that's uh, uh, something I said in a lecture uh, not not long ago, uh, we need to think about uh, being wise with litigation. Because it's very well to be defending challenges, to be at the receiving end of these challenges, but there is also, as the climate change movement will teach us, probably some opportunities to set up some test cases to challenge governments for their failure to act uh, or uh, industry actors themselves for misleading uh, practices or otherwise unfair commercial practices. And again, an area where uh, we could do far more work. Um, So that's one thing I wanted to say. When you say, uh, when you refer to uh, the work of Pipita, um, specifically on the uh, TBT committee, the Technical Barriers to Trade Committee, she's done some really interesting work reviewing all the notes um, and, and all the specific trade challenges that have been mounted against states that wanted to advance Uh, a better health for all agenda. Um, And it's not that state, so I have to to correct something you said or to nuance something you said. It's not that states have to prove that their measures are health promoting. States actually, and that's the crux of your question, states have under international trade law, WTO, World Trade Organization law, or European Union internal market law, a significant margin of discretion as to how they can protect 
public interest. The problem is that in these diplomatic fora, not before a court, states, very often low, low and middle income countries, find themselves under the pressure of global north countries, higher income countries, that have direct access to the industry and um, uh, sort of suggest that certain measures are not trade compliant, that there are in particular two arguments we see a lot, that they are unnecessarily restrictive of trade and uh, that they, um, they violate the TRIPS agreement on intellectual property. Uh, intellectual property. Now, this, this is in most cases not true. So states have to be cognizant of their obligations under trade law, not to discriminate against foreign goods, if, not to be unduly trade restrictive, but they also have these human rights obligations to protect public health, and this is for them to do. So I think one of the collective responsibility of state is to allow those that have the sufficient will, the political will to go further, to regulate the alcohol industry rather than challenge them on, frankly, very dubious arguments. Uh, and we've seen that when a matter goes to court, that it's not stopped at the stage of political uh, discussions, we have massive successes. Minimum unit pricing of alcoholic beverages, it was trade compliant. End of the matter. Now, the, the story is not whether you should have minimum unit pricing. Is, is the minimum unit pricing sufficient or by how much should it be increased to serve its purpose? So I think these litigation, these cases can be very helpful to public health because they are massive successes because the industry a lot, but ultimately the industry loses and the public health community can get a bit emboldened with these. Yeah, I think that really explains well, I think, I mean, you said it well also that we haven't uh, dropped the ball, we haven't picked it up and we need to pick up the ball now and then I think hold governments in arenas accountable that are not global health. So I think we are trained in doing that in the World Health Organization space, but now we need to bring this also to the World Trade Organization I hear what you are saying there that I think if Kenya wants to introduce warning labeling and uh, the European Union, Germany are challenging this, um, Kenya deserves some support also and um, some explanation, like you're saying, of what their human rights obligations are and um, what the trade regulations then actually mean. So that brings me to, you mentioned in the beginning, digitalization, I mean, The global alcohol strategy was adopted in 2010, so it's 12 years later, and in a way, it's a different world we live in, right? With the smartphones and uh, globalization and, uh, and so on, everybody basically having access to the internet. So we have so many alcohol policy issues now that I think have a cross-border dimension, taxation, marketing, labeling we refer to now. Uh, also availability when it comes to the digitalization of commerce, uh, on-demand delivery. Um, they all have this cross-border dimension that is getting ever stronger. And this is, of course, often challenging, as you know, in the European Union especially. Uh, but it also holds potential. And I wanted to ask you, what 
do you see countries can do collectively or even should do uh, from a human rights uh, perspective to advance alcohol policy development on some of those? I mean, pick pick some issue that I just mentioned. Yeah, uh, again, that's a really interesting question. And the tension is this. States are the guardians of human rights. They are the ones that regulate primarily. Uh, but the actors that we're talking about, the industry, uh, the alcohol industry, the uh, ad tech industry, are organized and operate primarily at a global scale. So you, you find this tension of what can a state do um, first on its own, and then uh, we know without being challenged by the others. So the first thing I would repeat is collectively states have a responsibility not to challenge the others that do the right thing. And I can't insist on that enough. But there's also, of course, the possibility for some states that have some uh, regional mechanisms in place and potentially very robust ones to act together. And your example of the European Union is, um, is very, very useful in this respect, because on the one hand, the European Union has significant powers, legislative powers, regulatory powers, to adopt EU-wide measures that are harmonized for its now 27 uh, member states, and that, if at the right level and evidence-based, have the significant potential to do two things. First, from our perspective, to improve public health and implement the, the global strategy, the global action plan, and more. And that's one, one thing, but two also to promote a, a harmonized um, uh, set of rules that uh, improve the functioning of the internal market. And that's very important from the point of view of the alcohol industry as well, because uh, if you don't have this harmonized standard, there's a degree of competition between states and uh, the argument will be made by uh, uh, the alcohol industry in states that do not regulate so strictly uh, and that may plan to regulate strictly. Why would you put us at a disadvantage over 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 over? of a state. So um, there is this regulatory competition that a harmonized standard can help to avoid. So what has the EU done? That, what, the problem is this. The EU has the powers. The EU should use these powers because it's mandated by the EU treaties to adopt a high accord level of public health protection in the development and implementation of all its policies, including its internal market policy, free movement of goods, as we're talking about, or services. It is mandated also to do the same for consumer protection and for children's rights. So you see the rights, the health, the consumer, all this appears. So the mandate is here. But we don't, so good news, in terms of how the EU proposes to use its powers, is that the new commission is uh, more robust on this front than the two previous ones that were completely, excuse me for saying so, absolutely useless as far as addressing alcohol-related harm. And I think there was a desire not to do it because all that they did was, was not only very little, but misconceived. So now we have a 
the idea that the Commission is going to uh, regulate or propose some uh, directive on alcohol health warnings, on um, uh, labeling. But in a way, it's far less than the global action plan calls for, right? Uh, and there, there are also revisions on taxation. But when you look at what the Commission has done on marketing, you think this is so substandard. When you think about the way it has regulated tobacco, advertising, labeling, etc., it has adopted a specific directive to, in fact, the tobacco advertising and the tobacco products directive. And we have a cross-border ban on marketing. And marketing is defined broadly to include sponsorship, to include product placement, and to include packaging. Because nice little characters on, 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 on bottles and packs and so on are appealing and are intended to increase consumption, ultimately. So the appeal of a product. So the EU has the mechanisms. But for alcohol, it has left the whole issue in the hands of DG Connect. And I'm sorry, they know nothing. And again, they've refused to really engage because they have been given a chance since 2003, since the audiovisual media services directive has been discussed. And they've never really participated in an open way and constructive way to the debate. So my solution, if states are serious, EU states are serious about collectively regulating uh, marketing not least to children, they must move away the dossier from uh, a director general that only has uh, a limited interest in health, move it to DG Santé uh, or consumer, uh, and make sure that this is the director general in charge. And then we can really talk about uh, a text that will be sufficiently comprehensive. When you look at the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and you know the restrictions on profiling of children for commercial purposes, you know that the European Union can do things. And not only can they set the standard, but they can also set um, implementing mechanisms that will, enforcement mechanisms that will put off uh, industry potentially from violating the standard because I think if I remember correctly, 10% of your global uh, turnover for the big ad tech industry is a massive sum of money, right? So you do have uh, mechanisms that you could use, but it's not used. And this is the problem. We do not have yet enough political will to achieve the right standard. So we have substandard standard. And these substandard standards in some ways create more difficulties for member states because we have, as you very well know, the country of origin principle. So the, the AVMS directive sets a minimal standard. States can exceed the standards for um, audiovisual media services providers established on their territory, but they can't stop marketing from coming from other member states. And uh, Sweden, the country where you are at the moment, uh, tried to challenge some advertising coming from the UK. And the Commission said, with the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, you can't challenge it. This is just what the directive does. Uh, that's not what the Commission said. That's my word. A completely unsuitable, lose-lose compromise, lose for the internal market, lose for consumer protection and public health. Uh, and uh, it's better if 
states do not regulate collectively when they do so, so badly. But when they do it well, as we've seen for tobacco, that has massive uh, uh, potential to achieve the right outcome. So very good to have standards, but make sure they have the right evidence-based, human rights-based standards. Otherwise, abstain and leave states to do it themselves. Yeah, I think it's remarkable. Um, this seems to be a through line, of course. Um, now you have also mentioned the Tobacco Products Directive. I think it's remarkable that um, in this conversation, the European Union is substandard when it comes to protecting people in the EU from the harms caused by uh, the products and practices of the alcohol industry. And I just wanted to ask you, is the European Union as such party to these human rights instruments that you mentioned before? Uh, or is it the, 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 the contracts of the EU themselves that are the human rights tools that you are referring to here? So the European Union can uh, adhere to international treaties and conventions. For example, the EU, as well as its uh, 27 member states, is a party to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. The European Union is also uh, a WTO member state. Uh, so when uh, uh, France adopts some legislation, the EU has to respond. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's why so often you see the EU rather than one of the member states. So you see that uh, there, is, uh, there is some potential. Many conventions are not as such signed and ratified by the European Union, but through Article 6 of the Treaty on the, Fun uh, of the, Treaty on the European Union, the, uh, these conventions become uh, somehow legally binding because they constitute um, general principles of European law that are in the hierarchy of norms, uh, same as a treaty articles, and therefore a secondary legislation like directives, regulations, must comply with this Uh, uh, with, uh, with, with these general principles. And they, for example, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has been relied on by the Court of Justice in a range of judgments. And the convention is mentioned in the EU strategy on the rights of a child. So again, it's not a yes, no. The answer is no. The, the EU has not ratified the convention, but through Article 6, the convention nonetheless has weight for EU Uh, laws and policies. I think that is very interesting. I think, um, again, there is uh, certainly work to be done in analyzing um, the human rights implications of alcohol harm, even specifically to different regions. I think the EU lends its, uh, itself very well to this conversation. Thanks for uh, some of the nitty gritty there. But I mean, I think of the ASEAN the East African community, there are other really well, North America, really well integrated economic uh, regions, so to say. Um, so I think that um, we, we, we will be looking into this, hopefully together with you, um, to take up this ball um, eventually. And Amandine, you said uh, for my first question, and that was a very big, wide question. So I thought it's good to finish like that with a very big And wide question, I wanted to ask you then on this conversation about collective action from states, uh, you talked a little bit about the EU dimension. Of course, the ultimate way of 
collective country action is a global binding treaty and you refer to the FCTC Article 5.3. What do you think from this uh, law perspective, human rights perspective, is the potential of a global binding instrument for alcohol control? <laughs> um, I think the potential is enormous, but we need to build momentum and political will. There was uh, support for the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, number one. So uh, let, let's do it well if we do it. And if you look at the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, I think it's been successful because of specific mechanisms that it has um, relied on. For example, it is a minimum uh, standard convention. So it does not stifle member states' initiative. It only lays down minimum standards. So everybody can agree on some minimum standards, which for some states already will be a major improvement if they implement them. But other states that have more political will can go beyond, and this is also okay for the uh, convention. Uh, the other two mechanisms I will briefly mention is that um, the uh, Framework Convention um, also has um, some guidelines and you, you have guidelines that are regularly um, uh, published to update what the convention uh, should mean. And these guidelines have been, we've seen it in the uh, tobacco plane packaging case where Australia was challenged, uh, or even in when Philip Morris challenged the Tobacco Products Directive, uh, the FCTC guidelines have been used to uh, explain what a certain provision should be understood to mean. So I think uh, this is uh, particularly important to maintain the flexibility and it is a framework. So again, uh, there is the possibility of adding to it. Um, and again, the, um, the initiative should not be stifled. So uh, that's what I would say, that the, the convention has significant potential, but we have to ensure that it is done well because having substandard provisions can backlash. What happens is when the, the industry is going to use the convention to say, oh, but why do they adopt these, these uh, more robust legislation at national level? The alcohol convention or whatever it's called doesn't suggest that this is how it should be done. And therefore, the state will find itself in a situation where they have to account far more than they might like for what what they are doing uh, um, in their territories, in their jurisdiction. So I think we have to be careful. But I'm all for it. If there's the, the proposal has been made. There's been a proposal for global alcohol convention. There's been proposals for a, a global alcohol marketing code. Uh, there's been proposals for, uh, and that's something I think you, the alcohol control community, should follow closely, uh, a protocol to the Convention on the Rights of a Child on harmful marketing. And uh, amongst the, 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 the commodities uh, listed, uh, you had alcohol very clearly in there alongside uh, others such as tobacco, food, baby milk, gambling services and so on. Yeah. And now I already said that this is my last question, but now I have to correct myself and ask one follow up question because this is really so interesting. Um, Today we talked about alcohol harm, 
and human rights or the human rights uh, potential for um, alcohol policy development. And it seems to me, and I want to ask you, Amandine, that also this uh, the, the human rights approach to reasoning about and arguing for a global binding treaty um, holds lots of potential or in a in, uh, frame differently is still underutilized. So we talk about the public health harm. Uh, we talk maybe about the, the uh, transnational industry that needs a transnational instrument, but we don't talk about the human rights reasons why this uh, kind of instrument is needed. Uh, what would you say to this kind of reflection? Uh, I, I say the argument goes even further because that goes back to a previous question you had. I agree with you that there is potential in arguing for a rights-based approach uh, for collective action, uh, state action to address alcohol-related harm. And bearing in mind that, you know, the marketing is cross-border, uh, that business actors that are at the heart of a problem are from concentrated industry operating around the world, that they ship their investment from regulated to less regulated countries, uh, and that they've developed strategies that capitalize on international trade liberalization and foreign direct investment. I think the argument is very strong that mm. there is a collective responsibility to address the problem and addressing the problem includes in addressing the cross-border dimension. But I think that also means that this collective responsibility and what a human rights-based approach means for states acting collectively rather than individually uh, is also underexplored when you think of uh, WTO. Uh, mm. And there are some uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, uh, the current one, and uh, uh, Michel F uh, Michael Fakri and previous one, Olivier de Schrutter, uh, they, they both went to the WTO to do some missions to sort of reflect on what the WTO should do to protect and promote uh, the, the right to food. Uh, so I think there is quite a lot of work to be done. We've started to, to do this work. We have a book on, um, uh, well, it's on obesity, but a lot of it would be relevant for uh, in relation to alcohol on um, uh, obesity being a challenge at the crossroads of international economic trade law and human rights law. And I think reflecting on the intersection in these very complex areas of um, uh, NCD risk factors, alcohol, and so on, uh, holds, I think, a lot of potential. Yeah, and I'm really interested to continue this work, really. I want to say this conversation, but this work with you, I like this report that you did for UNICEF, rights-based approach to food marketing. If you replace food with alcohol. I think we need this kind of report. I know colleagues in the tobacco control community, they are engaging at the Human Rights Council and they are engaging some of these human rights mechanisms like the rapporteur on the human right to health, I think. So I think that there is lots of potential. And today you have given us, I think, a really adventurous ride through uh, what that uh, means, what that can look like. And I think now we have to make it concrete. But for now, I just want to thank you for uh, coming on the Alcohol Issues podcast, taking the time to discuss this and really sharing this unique perspective. As I said in the beginning, this is, I think, so powerful. So thank you so much, Amandine. No, it was my, my great pleasure. Always happy to work with you.
Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks to Professor Amandine Gard for taking the time to talk in depth about alcohol policy and human rights. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to support an evidence-based approach to alcohol policy development and to accelerate action on alcohol harm. In the show notes, we share resources regarding the topics we addressed in our conversation, including the studies and reports mentioned in the conversation. It is always great to hear from listeners and to receive your feedback about what you think about the topics and episodes. Your feedback, questions, your suggestions for future topics and guests is most welcome. So please get in touch. You can find my contact details in the show notes. If you like our work with the Alcohol Issues podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment, rate our show and spread the word. In this way, you help more people to find this podcast. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda and Kristina Sperkova. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you stay well and safe and talk to you soon.